Hey everybody, Joshua Hatton here. Listen, uh, before we get into today's episode, which I promise will be all sorts of fun and geeky and funny and, and all that stuff, um, I wanted to reach out to you all on a very serious note. My friend and next door neighbor, uh, unfortunately, was in an accident at a local beach. Uh, a wave had taken him uh, as well as the undertow and uh, threw him against the ground and unfortunately snapped his neck. Um, he's been in the hospital for a bit over two weeks now. First intubated, now they have a trach. He can't really talk on his own. He can't really breathe on his own. He can't really move. Um, I mean, just to give you an idea as to how serious this is, they're in conversations with the Christopher Reeves Foundation to see what his life is going to look like from here on out. That being said, there there is a lot of hope. He's got his, his wife, Linda, and his three kids, and they're all supporting him. And, uh, and we want to support him, too. Uh, they've got a GoFundMe set up right now, and I wanted to share that link with you all just in case you were interested in, in helping and donating to them as they try to deal with or grapple with their medical bills. So if you're interested in uh, donating, my friend's name is John Van Steenbergen. And the GoFundMe, I actually made a bit.ly link for you just to try to make it a little easier. Um, I'll post it in our Facebook group page, but I wanted to list it here too in case you had a pen, piece of paper, something like that. You can write it down. Uh, the link is bit.ly, so a, a bit.ly link, uh, slash three, and then lowercase v as in Victor, Y as in yellow, I as in indigo, and then uppercase V as in Victor, uppercase H as in Haida, and uppercase V as in Victor. Again, that link is for my friend John Bam Steenbergen, who uh, unfortunately broke his neck and is in uh, a lot of need right now. Not expecting you to give. Should you give, I thank you. His family thanks you. appreciate your time listening to this. And, um, and all your support. So listen, let's hand it off to the show. Cheers. Thanks so much. Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined, as always... By, not with, but by, because we're not conjoined, uh, my, my good friend, <laughs> my business partner, my Catoctin Creek shirt-wearing white walker, Jason Johnston Yellen. How are you, sir? I tell you, dude, if you start naming the t-shirts I'm wearing during recording, it's going to get repetitive really soon, <laughs> really because I circle, I circle three black shirts. <laughs> the Catoctin Creek that I'm currently wearing, the uh-huh. Backwoods that you and I both agree is a great shirt. Yeah. And single cast nation. Those are the three shirts that I rotate. <laughs> do, you, do you not wear the uh, the king sheep shirt? I wear that. Oh, occasionally, yeah. occasionally, yeah, 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 yeah. But that that has not been in rotation much this summer. I did look at it in my drawer the other day, to be honest with you. But I wore it the other day. I I went out. I was in public with it. Even there, you go. Did people follow you? No, they just mocked me. <laughs> So, th- so for our listeners, the shirt. Yeah, for the listeners, <laughs> the shirt on the front has a uh, like the, a, the, a cartoon profile of a sheep with a crown on it, and Indeed. and it just says on the front, 
I am a sheep. And then on the back... I'm, I'm a sheep. That's it. I'm a sheep. <laughs> and on the back, it says, follow me. It does indeed. Yeah. It does indeed. Follow me. Yeah. It's from my, my very good friend, Pat Johnson, and uh, um, a comic book that he did with Nate Taylor. Mm-hmm. Nate Taylor's artwork is is really good. Yeah. Really yeah. good. And uh, and yeah, we, we sponsored a Kickstarter of theirs years ago. Years ago. Years Eight years ago. ago. At Maybe least. even more than that. Yeah. Uh, and the t-shirt came with that. And so I've got the I've got the hardbound collection of their comics. So yeah. If uh, if anybody wants to have a Google search, Google King Sheep and Comics, Nate Taylor, Pat Johnson, see what you see. And and just really quickly, seeing as we're talking about this, I had a large King Sheep shirt. Uh, but I also had a medium as well. And I now, because of all the running I do fit quite comfortably into that medium. Now, or into the large. Gotcha. It, it, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, fit comfortably into the large. Well done. <laughs> well, I fit comfortably into the medium, but that got me thinking about uh, <clears throat> our friend Mitch Wilson from Black Tot. So he mm-hmm. had he had these really cool Black Tot shirts that, you know, this was right as we're starting to come out of the pandemic, which I'd argue we're still coming out of the pandemic and things, <laughs> right, this isn't, anyway, and, you know, <laughs> bars were opening up. Remember that? Like, bars were opening up and there were limited hours and, mm-hmm. you know, they were like, let you support your bar, support your bartender, things like that. And so they had made these shirts that, you know, black tot shirts that, that say, you know, your bar needs you. And, and there would be like these you know, drawings of a bartender or a, a barista or whatever, you know, making cocktails for you. Anyway. Baristas making cocktails? What oh, world that, is this? Well, that's, that's a good point, right? I guess. <laughs> you you hate the word mixologist so much, I you do. would substitute in the word barista I instead. Cocktail. So there you go. So it was actually cocktailogists. Is a, right? a, a male cocktailist yeah, and a female cocktailist. That makes sense. Yeah. And, <laughs> who makes a cocktail? A cocktailist. A cocktailist makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Who inspects your prostate? A proctologist. Right? So anyway. <laughs> These are all just words. <laughs> <laughs> so so I really liked the shirts, especially the uh, the one with the female bartender on it, because she's kind of got a profile and she's shaking her cocktail shaker and it kind of looks like that old, that old, you know, we can do it kind of. Thing. Oh, okay. You know what I'm talking I, about? The old war yeah, effort looked, thing? Yeah, it looked much more like a, a shake weight commercial that you were modeling there. <laughs> anyway, so I asked Mitch for a shirt. He said, yeah, no problem. What size do you wear? And I said, well, thank God I'm a medium these days. So <laughs> he gave me two shirts. And I look at the tag and it said L. And I'm like, ugh. Um, you know what? He's so nice. He gave me two shirts. He didn't give me one. He gave me two. He gave me the one with the male bartet cocktailist and the one with the female cocktailist. I'm like, ah, whatever. And so I put one of the shirts on and it fit perfectly. And I'm like, oh no, am I back to a large without me even knowing it? And then I look back at the tag. And when you look closely, it's... It was a child's large. <laughs> It was, it had two sizes. It said L-E-U-M-U-S. 
<laughs> so it's medium. Talk about damning right? with faint praise. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it just, it goes to show you that Einstein's theory of relativity is in fact true. It not just applies to time and space, but one's own, you know, sense of body. <laughs> Right. I thought you were suggesting you were so large you could bend light around yourself. <laughs> Changing subjects really quickly. Uh, <laughs> so I've got two questions for you, but I, I yes, sir. I want yes. to lead with my first question. The second question oh. has to do with today's guest. The first question has to do with. So I, if I'm following correctly, yeah. you're going to ask your first question first and your second question second, just to make sure I'm following. Yes, yes. And okay, okay. First question has two words. First word has one syllable. Second okay. word has two okay. syllables. I tell you, do you know what podcasters don't do enough of? What's that? Mime. That's, <laughs> I just, I think all podcasters are missing a trick there. So I am ready. The listeners and I are ready for this mime. Do you think mimes have their own like podcast network? It's like 45 <laughs> minutes of silence. And they tell you it was a great episode, but they can't tell you it was a great episode. <laughs> I tell you, you already framed this episode beautifully with your shake weight mime. So we are we are really rocking at this episode. Whoever so yes, please continue. Shake weight really enjoys male masturbation. Anyway, so my what? I'm not wrong. It doesn't. I'm not wrong. Am I wrong? <laughs> Okay, I've got a Walter moment happening here. Carry on. Carry on, Walter. So my first question for you is regarding our most recent trip to Black Button Distillery. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something that you had said, I think, to either Jason or Alex at, at Black Button, where we we kind of did the release of a Black Button whiskey in reverse. We're normally, <laughs> right, we're, we, we start a relationship with the distillery yeah. We get in with them, we talk about what we want to do, and then we release the whiskey. We released a black button whiskey, and then we went to visit them. We were with them just about a week, week and a half ago, and we, and we got to visit their, their still house, one of their warehouses. We went to visit their, their maltster. We got to do a lot of drinking with them, taste some cast samples. So my question to you is, what was the... Two things. What was the <laughs> highlight for you from what you understood about bourbon production? And what was the thing that took you by surprise from our visit with them? So the second one's being surprised. What was the first part of this first question? Well, we, we've been to our fair share of bourbon distilleries. What mm-hmm. about their distillery stood out to you? having been to other distilleries. So by comparison to the other distilleries we had been to. I'm not sure if I'm if I'm going to answer your question here, but 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 <laughs> I know you asked the, me a question, but I said but, fuck that. I'm gonna answer well, something it's, else. It's, it's a point of commonality. Okay. Which is when you walk in that door, the first thing you hear is we are a small operation we don't have enough space to do the things we've wanted to do. Mm-hmm. We are in the processes of moving to a larger facility. When we first came in here, we never imagined filling the space. And <laughs> holy moly. And, and, and that's something you hear from, 
from smaller producer to smaller producer, and they're mm-hmm. they're ten years into this, yeah. and I think it's always such a telling statement because there's the how do you simply start this thing? And, and back to our conversation with Jason that was a few episodes ago, right? How do you just simply one day start owning, operating, running, mm-hmm. distilling at a distillery, mm-hmm. yeah. right? There has to be that first day. And, and, and the reason that it always strikes me is because of, of you and me, right? Mm-hmm. When we talk to people and, and we look back after now 11 years, yeah. I, I can't imagine starting this tomorrow, right? Yeah. The fact we ever took that first step and it was three casks and we had no members. You know, at one point we obviously had no members because we had no single cast nation. And so to see the growth and, and it gives me an opportunity to think about our growth yeah. and, and bringing people in. And so... So that that's kind of my initial sense in walking into a new facility mm-hmm. and meeting ostensibly new people, seeing Jason in the flesh, sure, seeing Alex in the flesh, is that kind of, yeah, this shit takes off and you have to keep growing and you have to move and yeah. Yeah. you have to stay alert, you have to stay on your feet. And so that that was that was kind of my first striking moment okay. was the okay. the commonality yeah. of it all. And and you and I know you've got a second question that that uh, second part of that question. But what was your kind of ah yes this moment? Yeah, my <laughs> my answer to that that question is is far less introspective. Than, than yours is. Mine was looking at the still, and, and, and I'll post a picture of it because I took a picture of the still, you know, seeing this combination of, of, a, of, of a pot and, and a column still. And the thing that struck me the most, and I almost like, Jesus, after your answer, this almost feels stupid, <laughs> but was looking at the line arm and how okay. incredibly small and, and narrow the line arm was. And it, and it reminded me of when Elijah and Johnny and I went to um, Westward Distillery and they had this massive pot still with this tiny itsy bitsy little line arm that made for such a wonderful spirit. And And I'm sort of kicking myself now, you know, looking back, I didn't make that connection at first when I was at Black Button, so I didn't get the opportunity to ask about mm-hmm. the line arm. Mm-hmm. But when mm-hmm. I was at Westward, I did ask specifically about the line arm, at which point you'd say, here's a perfect opportunity for Joshua to tell me what he remembers from this conversation about the line arm, and I remember fuck all. But but I remember it was it was interesting. <laughs> well, pleasingly, uh, regular <laughs> listeners of the podcast are saying... It's always the line arm with Joshua. It's always the line arm. God, you've been holding that for a while since this whole thing. As soon as you said it was so small, it's just <laughs> classic, classic Joshua. But but I, um, I you know, yes, go on. Having been in their warehouse and tasted through some of their bourbons, some of the malt that they did because they did do some single malt, and mm-hmm. and tasting the the spirit. It's big, 
right? It is, it is a bigger spirit, which makes me, again, wonder what that line arm is doing with it being so small. God damn it, Jason. I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> You're such I'm a nine-year-old boy right now. You're such a nine-year-old head. boy. <laughs> Big spirit from a small line arm. That's... <laughs> But you're right. You're right. It is. It is a. It oh, is you'll a, give a, me that. Okay, good. It is a big. It is a big spirit. <laughs> I've been. I've been racking my head. I've been taking advantage of you waxing lyrical about big spirits from small line arms. Um, to to think about your second part, which is what was most surprising, and every setup is is unique and unto itself. But I I feel like... Chicken tonight? Nothing... Like chicken tonight? Chicken tonight? <laughs> I, I, I don't feel like I was surprised by anything. Like the, the outgrowing the space within a decade, mm. the needing more warehousing, the fact that everybody was lovely and everybody was deep into the craft of what they were producing. Mm, the yeah, fact that the yeah. tasting room was a lovely place to hang out. Um, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Mm. And this actually, I said this on site, and then I it's built into their branding, Okay, which is New York's Urban Farm Distillery. Hmm. I didn't think we were visiting a distillery on the very edge of downtown Rochester. Uh, I thought we were going out into the country amongst fields because we, we talked about farming so much. Yeah, sure. We talked about grain yeah. so much yeah. back in our interview with Jason. And so I, I just had it. a little corner of my brain had the farm aspect of it without the urban aspect of it. And uh, so... Got it, got it. And so that, that was... That was a little bit of a surprise for me, and, and and that was entirely on me. That I don't think they misled me in any way. And that's why I point out the fact in their own branding is New York's urban farm distillery. It's right there. So, um, and then they're moving about a mile away from where they currently are. Yeah. So it'll still be New York's yeah. urban farm distillery. So so that there you go. I would say that surprised me. Um, okay. Amongst amongst a host of other things that were not surprising, including the absolute quality of the human beings. The thing that grabbed my attention was them wanting to take us to see their maltsters. And and this is something that, that Matt Hoffman from Westland had wanted to do, right? And I, I thought it was mm-hmm. so interesting that they they have both Black Button and and Westland have such a tight connection with their maltster. And so visiting the Murmuration Maltsters just maybe 30 mm-hmm. minutes from their distillery. Judd and Emily? That, yeah, Judd and Emily. And seeing their operation was, was super cool. But there was a specific part of the operation, something I'd never seen before, and they were malting corn. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, that wasn't for Black Button's use. It was for, for a local brewery. But it's, it's one of those moments... And we say this all the time, you know, we've visited plenty of distilleries and we continue to visit more and more different distilleries. And there's always something that says, oh, I hadn't thought of that. That's interesting. They're doing this different. (laughs) They're doing that different. And you're always learning stuff that's new. Mm -hmm. But that's always been very, 
distillery centric were here, we learned a lot of new stuff from a maltster perspective and what they're doing with grain, not just with the malted corn, but how they're soaking the barley. And it gets me thinking, we've got to get a maltster on here and, and, and start oh, talking about uh, the magic that happens in malting. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things we assumed we would have done by this point. Yeah. And, and as we both stood there with, with Judd and Emily, it was kind of like, why don't we have our remote recording equipment on us right now? Like, it was in the hotel we, room. <laughs> right. We both kind of had that sense of, oh, this is, this is more than we anticipated. Mm-hmm. This, and, and, and you and I say it all the time to each other when we're out and about, our listeners would be digging this conversation. We said it to Judd, you know, yeah, yeah. At, at the beginning of that conversation, like, ah, oh, if our listeners could hear you right now, this is fantastic. So we will, we'll circle back on that mm-hmm. and, uh, and we'll make sure we'll get uh, Judd, hopefully Emily, uh, on the podcast to talk. Yeah, it was a Malting. wild conversation. And I, and I loved one of the things that he said, he would, talk about the different steps of malting and different things you do from many different perspectives. But he said, I'm not a malt. What did he say? He said, you know, I'm not, this is not a scientific approach. I don't know the science behind it, which I thought was very, very cool. When he did. Right. right. <laughs> well, when he did, right? Like, I think he understood. I think what he meant to say is he didn't know how to necessarily explain why, from a scientific <laughs> perspective, it was happening, but yet it was happening. And it, it, it makes me think of, you know, fantastic guitar players or piano players who've, who've never taken a lesson in their life. They just pick up the instrument and know what to be doing and know how to work with it. And, and that's the sense that I got from Judd. Yeah, there was definitely this aspect of malting is as much art as science and yeah, you're paying yeah. attention to every bit of grain that comes in and, and really every batch that comes in and differences in moisture levels and you know how are they actually germinating mm-hmm. and how quickly mm-hmm. are they moving and what's the heat of the day like and so yeah there's, there's a lot of moving parts and I don't think you could just open the malting manual and and malt the exact same way day in and day out and and that that was kind of my takeaway from him was you you got to be listening to the grain and you got to be responding to the needs of the grain Mm -hmm. and that's yes there's science happening there but there's also an art as you rightly say i think about musicians and how you respond to to how you perform Mm -hmm. and how you put your art in play so brilliant yep we'll, we'll circle back to this there's no doubt about it so then my second question for you, Jason, is today's guest. You, yes, indeed. You brought this person and their book to my attention. I did. And indeed. again, you know, we're, we're taking another detour. And thankfully, our listeners have been following us along this ride uh, and the various detours that we take. So I wonder if you can set the stage for us. Yeah, actually, I I wondered that exact question um, when I when I kind of started the book and thought, okay, we're going to bring an author on here, and and authors are you know kind of not our normal guest around here, but it is a book dedicated to 
someone who operated during Prohibition, mm. who was the biggest bootlegger in the United States mm. during Prohibition. Yeah. And the more I read the story, and it's it's narrative nonfiction, and and so the more I'm reading this story, the more I'm thinking, oh, this is in the wheelhouse of one nation mm. under whiskey. Mm-hmm. This this is what we talk about. And gosh, look at what we cover in, in Extra Extra as well, where we're talking about, you know, decisions being made in 2022 on the back of pre-prohibition laws. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 well, like yeah. sometimes I feel like we're shackled by the remnants of prohibition. Yeah. So the book is written by Karen Abbott. Okay. The title is The Ghosts of Eden Park. Hmm. This is actually the second book I've read by Karen Abbott in the last, say, 12 months. The first one is Sin in the Second City. And and Ooh. it's about a, a pair of sisters mm-hmm. who open, a, a, <laughs> in the old language, a house of ill repute. Uh, in in Chicago, yeah. in very early doors, Chicago as well, and um, and they just make it the best. It's it's got class. It's got you know high end furnishings. They became the the envy of their little pocket of Chicago. And so, so so Sin in the Second City is fantastically well told and is also narrative nonfiction, yes. Well, when I think of a house of ill repute, you know, I'm thinking, you know, best little whorehouse in Texas. Exactly, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Exactly that, it's exactly. And so it is, yeah, it's, it's prostitution in the yeah. uh, turn of the 20th century okay. Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when Chicago was was as much a stockyard as it was a burgeoning city, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so she, so, so she told that story fantastically well. Then I saw the Ghosts of Eden Park, got into reading about George Remus and bootlegging. There and you I, go, I George Remus. Them. There's a, a name that comes to the <laughs> fore nowadays with the George Remus bourbon out there. Right, yeah. right. So, so yeah, I, I thought it was a, a very natural fit. Um, I reached out, we settled on an interview date, and what you're about to hear is is something that I think is really special in, in getting to sit and talk to an author about their process, their journey, just like we do with anybody in the whiskey industry. Yeah. But then going down the path of the actual story and, and, and talking prohibition and talking bootlegging. And I, I, I highly recommend this book to our listeners. It's absolutely in your wheelhouse. If you're the type of person to take the time to listen to a podcast about whiskey, yeah. go read a, a, a narrative nonfiction from prohibition and bootlegging era. That's awesome. Yeah, I my only wish slash regret was that I was able to conduct this interview along with you. But as you know, I was traveling with Madhu Kana from Indri Distillery. And uh, so while you were having your conversation, I was having my conversation. So 
we'll have a, a future episode with Madhu Khanna of Injury. And so today we have your interview with the author, Karen Abbott. So welcome to the podcast. We keep referring to you, Joshua and I, as the author Karen Abbott, because that's the name that appears on the, the two books I've read, Sin in the Second City, and now The Ghosts of Eden Park. But I know you as Abbott Kaler, and there's a bit of a story behind that. Would you regale us with that story? Sure, I'm happy to regale. And but first of all, thank you for having me on the on the show. I'm really excited to be chatting with you. Um, always nice to connect with another whiskey and history aficionado. Um, <laughs> so the story behind the name change, uh, this was about two, 2013. Um, I got an email from a reader who said, do you know that if you Google yourself, it says you died in 2010? <laughs> so sure enough, I, I Google myself, which I advise no one to ever do. Um, and there's a picture of me with a couple of my book covers and it says died 2010. And it was super creepy. I, I, I think just the element of having my photo there too was very creepy and also my alma mater. Um, and, and I just, uh, it was very weird. Um, and at that time I was also about to turn 40. I was considering a foray into fiction and I was like, you know what? I'm going to change my name. Um, and I actually went to the courthouse in New York. I spent, uh, you know, a couple <laughs> a couple visits to the courthouse changing my name. Um, and it became fish official, I think, in late 2014, early 2015, that um, my real name is Abbott Kaler, my legal name. Um, but I kept Karen Abbott on my on my nonfiction books just because I had at that time, you know, a couple books in my past and wanted to um, didn't want to disrupt that. So I, um, I'm not quite sure what name I'm going to use going forward. Uh, probably we'll keep Karen Abbott for nonfiction. I'm not, I'm not sure, but, um, my, I have a novel coming out as well. And that one will be under Abbott Kaler, but, um, yeah, so that's the weird story. Uh, it, it was kind of creepy because, um, I discovered, you know, under my books were under the picture in the Google search, but there was also, um, books that I did not write that appeared next to mine, books um, with titles like Take Hold of Tomorrow and Farrington's <laughs> Fortune. And like, clearly they were like bodice ripper, romancy type things that I, I did not write. So it turns out there is a, a British author um, named Karen Abbott. I have no idea if she's dead. She's, I, I don't know what her story is, um, but we were being conflated. So the whole thing was just so kind of weird and creepy. I was like, well, you know, have I been weakened at burning for the last few years? I didn't realize I was actually dead. Um, but, but it was, it was just kind of a, a an impetus for me to make, to make that change. Um which, you know, now was in my personal life and now will be in my professional life. So I was curious about, as you just said a second ago here, you've got this, this author's name, Karen Abbott, out there in the wild. That's who people talk about. That's who people recommend to one another. And I was curious with this name change, what it would mean for your authorial identity going forward but you're thinking you might keep that Karen Abbott on I the, might the yeah nonfiction. it's something I'm going to just talk with the, uh, my agent and my editor about um 
they, I, you know, they, they are aware of the name change, obviously they all call me Abbott. Um, but I, you know, if it's going to, uh, disrupt, you know, any, any, you know, any readership I might have, I don't want to do mm-hmm. that. So, um, but you know, I try to put those kinds of business like questions out of my mind until the work is actually finished because, um, <laughs> you know, the business aspect of it is just so tedious and, and stressful and, um, and you really just want to have fun doing the work. It's, it's, you know, this is the, this is my favorite part of the process where you're researching and, and we're just pulling everything together. And, you know, there'll be a time to think about those sort of more practical concerns, but I try, I try to put that <laughs> off as, as long as I possibly can. Well, I, I certainly want to return to the upcoming nonfiction piece towards the end of today's chat. For the moment, I'm, I'm always curious about process. And, and, and we'll, we'll get to talking about the ghosts of Eden Park in a, in a moment, and we'll apply process to that. But I, I recently I read a book by Sarah, and I'm, I'm blanking on the second name, but the, the book was called Process. And it went through maybe a dozen or 15 authors, and it really talked through how they did what they did. And the one thread that ran through it all was that they were all pretty much tortured by the writing process. And and in any given day, they would put it off for as long as possible. They would be in their office at 9 a.m. and they would spin pencils and they would go on social media and they would write letters to whoever needed correspondence. And then by maybe three o'clock, they would be like, oh shit, I gotta get something done for the day. And they'd work and they would hammer out a bunch of a bunch of words for the day. And then they would come back in the morning and maybe edit what they had done the previous uh, afternoon. Invariably, it was it was clocking off time by by five pm, so they could have a cocktail or or something. And so I'm I'm very curious. Where do you fit within the the world of process? What does that look like for you? That's a good question. I um I'm a night owl, so I will often you know wake up, have my coffee. I can't talk to anyone before. Like the fact that you and I are speaking at 10 a.m. my time is, is uh, I make it an exception for you because usually I'm not capable of any <laughs> coherent conversation. Um, I guess it remains to be seen whether this is coherent or not. But um, but anyway, I, I'm a night owl. So I will sometimes I'll, I'll get really start going around noon um, mm. and then I'll work until 830. Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, it's so funny. I have I'll have friends who say, hey, what to meet for happy hour? And I'm like, I- I'd love to, but it's the middle of my work day. I can't. I was like, you want to meet at nine? Want to get a night, you know, late nightcap? Um, but but it's, it's uh, you know, I, I also think that when people are procrastinating, um, a, a novelist friend of mine calls it stew potting. Um, you know, even if you're, you're ostensibly doing something else, your mind in, in the back of your mind, it's thinking about your story and your characters and what would organically um, happen next in your plot. And, um, I, I, so I don't think all of that is wasted. You know, I, I'll, I'll, you know, I will clean, I'll walk around and clean in the morning, maybe sometimes, but at the same time, I'm thinking about, well, how am I going to start that next chapter? Um, or, or, you know, how can I change that dialogue? It's not quite right. Um, Mm -hmm. this is in my fiction, of course, in my nonfiction. Um, and I, I guess this is an interesting comparison. It's so much easier in a way because, I don't have to make up dialogue. In fact, I can't make up dialogue. I have to adhere to what's in the historical record. Um, you know, you can't write bad dialogue in nonfiction. Uh, <laughs> so it's impossible. 
Um, but but I but I'll do that. I will I will I will work until about eight thirty. Um, I keep a uh, pad by my my bed that if I wake up, I'm also a horrible insomniac. If I wake up in the middle of the night and I have a thought, I will make sure I can get it down because it's so. I've learned the hard way that it's uh, sometimes those those kinds of midnight um, epiphanies are very elusive um, and and ephemer- ephemeral. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so so I'll do that and. Uh, and I try not to go back and edit um, what I did the day before, unless I know it's really, really off. If I think I ended it on an okay note, I'll I'll keep going ahead um, because it, it's kind of like the the more you distance you you get from what you've done, um, the better and easier I think it is to go back and edit when you do go through it again. Um, Interesting. So, Interesting. So that's, that's basically it. And I have a my African gray parrot as my companion. Um, <laughs> You know, he'll sometimes literally shit on my pages uh, <laughs> if they're spread out on the floor. If I'm looking at something, you know, in a big picture way, I'll spread the pages on the floor. And if he shits on something, you know, I, I have to take a second look at it. So <laughs> that's pretty much uh, my process. Okay. So, so I'm curious to, to circle back here to what you were saying there about dialogue. Do you ever find that having the dialogue in front of you can sometimes paint you into a, a narrative corner? As someone who also writes fiction, do you ever think, oh, I wish they'd said that like this and that would have allowed me to advance the narrative in this other way? Do you ever get trapped by that that hard and fast non-fiction dialogue? When you are writing um, non-fiction, especially you know, historical non-fiction, Sometimes the source material is so scarce that you are just happy to have any dialogue at all. Um, <laughs> it was one of the things, it's one of the things I actually look for when I'm de- trying to decide which nonfiction story to do. You know, what, what mm-hmm. is the primary source material? And I have pretty specific criteria for, for what I think makes a good nonfiction book. Um, the first one is, you know, does it, does it have um, a narrative arc? Could it read like a novel? Does it have mm-hmm. a, you know, a, are, the, are the stakes rising? Is there, a, a, you know, a, a beginning, middle and end? Is there a great climax? Um, th- that kind of thing. Can, can you, could you, you know, work with what you have to structure it to the best of your ability as a novel? Um, and, and usually, you know, I mean, you know, there are so many stories that, um, oh, wait, let me just backpedal there. The second thing I look for is, like I said, primary source material. You know, do you have letters? Do you have diaries? Do you have memoirs? Do you have, you know, the great thing is unpublished memoirs. Do you have a trial transcript? Um, do you have contemporary interviews with, with the, you know, the person's, um, you know, people the person knew at the time? And, and do you have the person's own words in a significant amount? And if you have those things, um, I think that you have those two components. I think that's what makes a good book. Um because the, those primary source materials are giving you detail, and detail is everything. Detail is the most important factor in a nonfiction book. Um, if you if you don't have the stuff, the source material to make for good detail, um, the book is just going to read really uh, shallow um, and hollow, and and kind of just superficially. And I like to say, you know, people who do what I do, who write historical nonfiction, are in the business of time travel. You know, mm. I want somebody to sit down with my book, and um, and, and kind of feel disoriented when they put it down. You know, oh, what time period am I in? And, you know, I just was in 1927. I'm, I'm like, whoa, what is, what is this television? Um, <laughs> and I just want people to really feel so immersed that it's, it, it's almost kind of, um, 
you know, a, a struggle to get back into the world. And you cannot do that without detail. Well, and I think it even, it goes in the other direction, you know, speaking personally, in starting the Ghosts of Eden Park, we start in 1927. And so I go from picking up the book in 2022 to, okay, I'm in a park in Chicagoland in 1927. You've already got me in that time machine. And now I'm asking myself the question, okay, who am I meeting now that I'm opening the door of this time machine? So um, the, the main character in, in The Ghost of Eden Park uh, is a man by the name of George Remus. Um, I'm guessing a lot of your listeners who are, are big into whiskey and whiskey history probably know the name George Remus. Um, Especially in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and also, of course, he was uh, a character, a minor character on the television show Boardwalk Empire. Um, mm. which ran on HBO for about five seasons. And I think it was a really, you know, I usually get my ideas from dusty old, you know, archives and, and books and libraries and sort of perusing old newspapers. But I got the idea for The Ghost of Eden Park through uh, Boardwalk Empire. You know, I thought it was a great show. And once in a while, this minor character named George Remus would show up. And he was mostly used for comic effect. Um, you know, he was this very flamboyant, subdued, but flamboyant in his own way, uh, prohibition king in Cincinnati. He spoke of himself in the third person. Um, uh, you know, there was a great scene with him and Steve Buscemi's character, Nucky Thompson. You know, they're wheeling and dealing. Um, they're on the phone. Steve, uh, Steve Buscemi's character is in New Jersey. Remus is in Cincinnati. Um, and George Remus says to Steve Buscemi, actually, it's Glenn Fletchler who plays a fantastic George Remus, says to Steve Buscemi's character, Remus finds you petty and resentful, um, you know, in the third person. And Steve Buscemi's uh -huh. character says, oh, well, Remus can go fuck himself. Um, <laughs> it's just a great scene. And I, I wondered, uh, and there's so many like it, and, and I wondered if he was a real character. I had not heard of George Remus before that point. And indeed, George Remus was a, a real character in history. Indeed, he did speak of himself in the third person. Um, and his real story, as I soon discovered, was so much more interesting and dramatic than anything that was portrayed on Boardwalk Empire. And I did, did a little digging to see what the primary source material was. And of course, it, I, I realized he would make a fantastic book. Your, your head must have exploded when you started unraveling that story to go from a minor, minor character to everything that you discovered about George Remus. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's interesting because when people think of Prohibition, they think of Al Capone, of course. They mm -hmm. think of Chicago. They think of the outfit. They think of, you know, his whole operation out there. And before Capone, um, there was George Remus. And in terms of just selling whiskey and distributing whiskey and operating a whiskey um, business during Prohibition, George Remus was the most more successful um, uh, bootlegger. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, it's, he just kind of got lost to history, I think, because he was not as outwardly flashly as Capone. He did not murder Pito, line, order these really um, gruesome murders, um, you know, St. Valentine's Day massacre. George Remus considered him I, himself, I think, above that sort of thing. If he was going to do any nasty business, it would have been very quiet um, and, and private. And, uh, you know, he, he wasn't going to publicize that fact. But, but, you know, and, and George Remus's empire did not last very long. So he kind of easily got overshadowed by Capone. And I just thought you, you really can't talk about the, the fantastic decade of the 1920s without talking about George Remus. You know, it's such a quintessentially American story. Um, George Remus was a German immigrant, you know, who came here and was dirt poor 
had to quit school to help his family um, just make ends meet and ends up, I mean, I think the most staggering statistic, there are a couple of them, um, but at one point, George Remus owned 33% of all of the alcohol in the United States. If you stop at it, one third of the entire supply of the alcohol in the United States belonged to one person. And he had he made, uh, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of 30 million dollars um, in that short time period. 30 million dollars, not in today's money, <laughs> in 1921 money, um, which is just just a staggering. I, I can't even fathom how how vast his fortune was. Every time I read the numbers in your book, I reread them and I reread them again. And, and I did exactly what you just did there for our listeners is I, I did that moment of, well, was that now money or was that then money? And the then money is breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking. And the parties that he threw as a result, the gifts that he gave as a result. I, I finished I finished your book a couple of weeks ago. I still think about his New Year's Eve party. Oh, yeah, that, that you, was a lot that of fun. That you describe. Um, <laughs> That one was was really a lot of fun. I mean, it, it, it kind of became, I think if anything anyone does know about George Remus, they often think about that New Year's Eve party. It's kind of the legend that really uh, persevered. Um, and I think partly because uh, his lavish parties are one of the reasons that people believe he was an inspiration for F. Scott Fitzgerald and the creation of Jay Gatsby. You know, mm. um, and just to talk about these party favors for a minute, you know, he gave he had this grand New Year's Eve party in 1921, showing off his brand new renovated Cincinnati mansion. He gave out a diamond stick pin for all the men. Um, all the women uh, got a, uh, a brand new car, you know, decades before Oprah, you get a car and you get a car. All the women <laughs> got a brand new car. And he put underneath each guest plate, he put a thousand dollar bill. Um, and just to put that all in this perspective, you know, at, at that time, a thousand, twelve hundred dollars was the average, average annual salary. Um, and he put a thousand dollar bill under everybody's plate. And, you know, I, there's no hard evidence that George Remus and F. Scott Fitzgerald ever met, although they were in um, Kentucky around the same time period. There's no hard evidence. Um, but but I think that um, the similarities between them are conspicuous. You know, they both owned a string of pharmacies. They both were in love with an enigmatic woman. They both threw these lavish parties. And, you know, Fitzgerald wrote um, that, that Gatsby sprang from a platonic conception of himself and, and that he kind of, you know, longed to inhabit a world that didn't quite welcome him. And I think Remus was in the same boat. Um, they both had that sort of sense of melancholy that, that, um, that sort of ran throughout their lives, that sense of not belonging. But also wonderful, there's that sense of you have the money, but what else do you have? And there, there's that sense of who am I? What am I? What am I becoming? And the money seemed to become, and I'm talking for Gatsby and for, uh, and for Remus here, it seemed about more than the money for Remus, where it almost seemed, like, even to him talking about himself in the third person, where he almost wanted to be known. He, he, he wanted to make a statement and a thousand dollar bill under a dinner plate makes a statement. Do, do you get that sense from, from reading, you know, obviously writing, but also, you know, reading more of the source material as well? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, it was very important for Remus to prove himself as a member of society. He wanted to be considered a respectable member of society. Um, I think it's part of the reason he was um, talked about how the quality of his liquor. He was not putting, you know, um, poison. He was not mixing his alcohol, mm. diluting it with poison. 
he wanted people to have the know that he had the best liquor. You weren't going to get Jake leg from drinking George Remus um, liquor. And it was important for him. You know, he lived in Cincinnati and, and he wanted to be seen uh, as somebody who might be able to mingle with the Tafts, you know, that William Howard Taft, the former president that he was in the Supreme Court at that time um, and, and various other luminous families in the in the Cincinnati area. And and just he he really wanted to be respectable. He he considered himself a businessman, a gentleman. Um, he and and it was very important to him. And I think you're right that that party was very symbolic for him. Um, here he is hosting a, a lavish party. It was you know tasteful. Uh, it was extravagant, but it was it was you know in his mind full classy. And uh, and he invited all of these luminaries. Um, he invited uh, all the important families in Cincinnati and, and judges and politicians and, and other people that he he wanted to, you know, he wanted to be accepted. Um, and I think that was that was a very, very important concern to him. For the benefit of the listener, the, the sound of a, a screech, almost the, a, a chair going across a hardwood floor is is I assume the grey parrot that it you were is, talking about before we hit record. Yes. What's you, the name of the parrot? His name is Dexter. Um, Dexter. Named after, after the, the serial killer? No, he's older than that show, actually. He's 21. Um, he was named after Pete Dexter, the novelist. Uh, there you go. There and you go. Um, I had another bird who passed away. Uh, her name was Poe, of course, after Edgar Allan. So, um, there you go. Yeah. Is, is Dexter warming up for a morning constitutional here or any of your pages <laughs> under assault? I don't know. No, my pages, luckily, are not printed out yet. I'm not at the phase yet where I'm printing. So uh, I think he's just, he wants to join the conversation. Would you, would you prefer if I bring him in my lap? He might start stop screeching if I bring him over. Whatever works for you, we are more than happy to to continue with Dexter. It's easy. Okay. Piece. All right. I'm going to leave him there for now, but yeah. I think he's, maybe he'll go back to sleep again. Yeah, so. no, he's not a problem <laughs> at all. And, and absolutely, he will be in for color as well. I think give you know, our listeners <laughs> yeah. a chance to hear from Dexter. <laughs> yes, he just wants to throw his two cents in. <laughs> so I, I want to tie in something you just said a second ago with prohibition itself, which is he was clearly operating within a certain letter of the law. And yet he was engaged engaged in the business of prohibition booze making and, and production. Do you get a sense that he did think he was legitimate? Was he doing enough within a certain letter to believe that in his own mind, even though he was clearly breaking the law? Maybe, maybe I'm overstating it now. No, no. I mean, it's a very good question because half of his operation actually was legal. You know, the Remus, who was a, a, a defense attorney, a very actually successful defense attorney in Chicago before he became um, a bootlegger, um, used his pharmaceutical background and his um, and his legal background to scour the Volstead Act to look for a loophole. And mm -hmm. he found the loophole. Um, the loophole was that um, with a uh, physician's prescription, it would be legal to, you know, buy, manufacture alcohol, distribute alcohol, that kind of thing for quote unquote medicinal purposes. It had to be for medicinal purposes. Um, and so, you know, there was a whole operation. The, the genius Remus's operation was that half of it was legal. So he, he, um, acts, he bought the string of pharmacies. He got government permits um, to access the uh, uh, whiskey that was bonded in the warehouses that, that um, before prohibition, that government bonded whiskey. 
Um, he got legally got that out of the warehouses. Um, and he had a fleet of trucks that were, quote, you know, bringing this alcohol to medicinal purposes, destinations, quote unquote. Um, but the real genius of his plan was that he also had another fleet of trucks. And the second fleet of trucks would hijack the first fleet of trucks um, and steal all of the alcohol and divert that alcohol to the illegal market um, at any price that Remus named. So he's basically robbing Remus to pay Remus. Um, which is why he called his enterprise the circle. Uh, and and it was sort of the genius of it. You know, um, he he found this loophole. He exploited it brilliantly. And um, and, you know, there, it, it, you know, there, so far along the process, it was all legal and fine. Um, it's just at that very end when he when he, you know, had the hijacking and, and the diversion of the alcohol that things really um, stepped over the law. So I have to be perfectly honest with you here. I I read your book in 24, 36 hours. Like I just absolutely destroyed it. I, I could not put it down. It, it literally was something I could not put down. But what what that has led to is earlier on when I talked about 1927 in Chicagoland, that might not be in Chicagoland. Is, or were they back in Chicagoland at that point? Well, first of all, thank you for reading my book so quickly and for the <laughs> ringing endorsement. I appreciate it. But uh, yes, the book starts in 1927 in Cincinnati. He okay. met he met Imogene, who was who became his second wife. He met her in Cincinnati. Um, she was the dust girl, quote unquote, in his office, which is what they called, I guess, the cleaning person at that time. Um, and then they moved to Cincinnati because it was a strategic location. I think it was something like. Um, most of the country's for, uh, pre-prohibition bonded whiskey was stored in warehouses within 300 miles of Cincinnati. Um, and so it just became a strategic location for him. It was a growing city. It was a transportation hub. You could easily reach other cities from Cincinnati. Um, and uh, so, yes. So it's, And then they're in Cincinnati from, from then on. So okay. in 1927, okay. which is actually, you know, I open with a scene toward the end of the book. <laughs> they are definitely in Cincinnati. In fact, they are in Eden Park. Yes, Cincinnati, which is which is the famous park in in uh, Cincinnati and and quite gorgeous and eerie. Uh, if anybody ever has the opportunity to go there to see the um, to see you know some George Remus history, that's it's it's really a, a really interesting, eerie, beautiful spot. Well, well, the other part I have to be honest about then is that the circle. I I remembered him calling it the circle, and I remember the early episode of the hijacking and I was I was racing through other details in your book that I I I didn't piece together that that hijacking was how the circle operated consistently that is remarkable that he was hijacking from himself yeah holy macaroni well that was the brilliance of it because it, it, it's kind of like let's be legal for as long as possible Let's cover, you know, let's sort of have yeah. our tracks covered for as long as possible and then just switch it at the end. So um, it was really, of course, you know, Remus was paying government officials all sorts of bribes and things like that that mm -hmm. smoothed, smoothed things along for his operation. But but it was really a genius plan. It was just it just sort of eliminated the risk um, in, in a great in a great significant way, I think. So, so I don't want you to just go piecemeal through your book naming 
character after character. But there, there is a paragraph that I want to return to, which will tie together the numbers that we've been discussing here, and it will bring in a character who is obviously central to the text as well. And I remember the exact page I want. This morning I went straight to it, and this time I'm leafing through a a few pages for dramatic effect. And so I'm, I'm on page 158 of the hardcover. And the paragraph, if, if you don't mind me reading this. No, please. Funds to fight the liquor traffic. You, you'll get to hear yourself in a Scottish accent. So you, you can see how that <laughs> know, sounds to you. Yeah, exactly. It's a lovely accent. So I'm quite enjoying it. <laughs> Funds to fight the liquor traffic diminished each year. Many states had once relied on liquor sales taxes to balance their budgets, and prohibition erased that revenue. Fewer and fewer states spent any money at all on pursuing bootleggers, choosing instead to devote resources to the enforcement of fishing and hunting laws. At the federal level, the government had suffered a loss of 11 billion, with a B, that's my editorialising with a B, in tax revenue while spending 300 million, with an M, on enforcement. Hence, Willebrand's zeal to prosecute bootleggers for tax evasion. So, so the Willebrand that you mentioned in, in that wonderful paragraph, Mabel Walker Willebrand, T talk to us about her. G give us some, some taste of her for our listeners uh, when they delve into this book. Yeah, so Mabel Walker Willebrand, I always love having a strong woman character in my books, and she certainly fits that bill. Um, Mabel Walker Willebrand, uh, just a fascinating person. By the way, also a minor character in Boardwreck Empire. I think they called her Esther Randolph in, in the show. Um, uh. And she... Uh, was just this remarkable woman. She sort of started uh, life differently than Remus. In fact, they have some interesting parallels. You know, Maywalk Rillenbrandt was, uh, you know, born in, in the prairies and she, um, you know, Remus had to quit his formal schooling at 14. She only began her formal schooling at 14. And she was this really uh, raised in this household where they demanded rigor. Her parents demanded rigor. She read a lot. She played um, sort of strategic games with her father. Um, and, you know, uh, he, you know, she, one of her favorite phrases was life has few coddled darlings. Um, <laughs> and she did not consider herself one of them. She took an ice cool bath every morning. Um, one of my favorite childhood anecdotes about her was that, uh, she once bit a pet cat's ear and to teach her a lesson, her father bit her ear in turn. Um, which is so strange, but, but it's just kind of just shows you she was, she was not sheltered. She, you know, sort of whatever she gave out, she had to take as well. Um, and, uh, she was remarkable. So, so what happened? She was a, a one, a woman who put herself through law school. She went to California. Um, she, uh, became a public defender, specifically taking women clients, she would um, defend prostitutes, and she was pioneer pioneered the um, practice of forcing the Johns to come in and testify too. So it wasn't just on the prostitutes; the Johns had to come and be dragged into court and sort of have their own shame. Um, and and so that was a, a big accomplishment for her. Um, and you know, the government at this time, uh, she was the Willen Brandt ended up becoming the second assistant attorney general of the United States. Um, the Republican Party, of which Will and Brandt was a member, very different from today's Republican Party, I should, I should say. 
they were eager to curry favor with the recently triumphant suffragists, you know, women getting the right to vote. So they're saying they're going to replace um, the first one with with Willenbrandt. And, you know, when she was called upon and when she was appointed by Harding, Lauren Harding, for this position, she um, was only 32 years old. She was five years out of law school and she had never prosecuted a single case in her entire career. And suddenly she's in charge of thousands and thousands of prohibition cases across the country, including cases against George Remus. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say that that her crooked bosses in the White House, Harding included, and her boss included Harry Doherty, um, all of these men who had quid pro quo and bribe arrangements with Remus and other bootleggers, you know, they've said, oh, let's let's just put the little lady in there. She's going to be inefficient. She's inexperienced. She's not going to know what she's doing. She's going to be overwhelmed. And of course, Will and Brand gets in there and just begins kicking ass. Um, and it was just remarkable. If you, you could imagine the kind of uh, sexism that female politicians still receive today. You can only imagine. Nobody, nobody could report on what she was doing without commenting about her hands and her eyes and her makeup and her figure. Um, and she would write these really great letters to her parents saying, I wish they would stop focusing on that girly, girly stuff, quote unquote, girly, girly stuff, and just talk about my policy. Let's talk about what I'm working on. Let's talk about my accomplishments. And to make matters even more difficult for Will and Brandt, uh, she was almost entirely deaf and she had hearing aids and she would spend an hour each morning um, arranging her hair to cover her hearing aids. She didn't want people to know that she was working with that handicap. And she wrote these, you know, in letters to her parents. Fortunately, there were many letters to her parents that I was able to go through. Um, she talked about how frustrating this was for her. And, you know, if they think I'm good now, you know, imagine how good I would be if I could actually hear the nuances of the conversation, if I could actually hear what my opponents are saying. I, I just think she was an absolutely incredible. Um, and as one of her friends later said later on, I think it was one of the lawyers involved with Watergate said, you know, if we, Mabel had worn trousers, she would have been president. So, mm -hmm. Is there a part for you in writing about Mabel where there's a certain frustration that everything you just said a moment ago and that you talk about in the book where her figure, her hair, you know, the, these qualities were included every time. And she says, I wish they would focus on my policies. I feel like you're writing historical nonfiction from a hundred years ago and we're no further forward. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, a, a really interesting point. Um, I mean, I don't want to say we're no farther forward. You know, women do have representation in the government, um, not, in the, not in the numbers that uh, correspond with their population, their numbers in the population. Of course, you know, if that were true, we'd have 51% women <laughs> running things. Um, and of course, we haven't yet had a woman president. Uh, which is kind of astounding to me at this point that, that we haven't. Uh, mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, of course, women politicians still get, um, still get uh, commented on for their appearance, uh, scrutinized for their appearance. Um, but, you know, people are also reprimanded when they do those things. Um, it's, it's considered, you know, to be beyond the pale um, for most of the time. Uh, at least in respectable publications. So, you know, if you want to call those some some uh, steps forward, um, we still have a long way to go, obviously. Uh, but but I think that it's it's not fair to say we haven't made any progress whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. I appreciate the balance. Um, <laughs> do, do you deal with it yourself? You you see it yourself as a, a female author who has the audacity to go into history? Is oh, is that I have. a real? I have, I've had that, you know, um, I, 
I will get scrutinized for, you know, using novelistic techniques while adhering all to the facts, of course, but um, in ways that my nonfiction, male nonfiction colleagues um, do the same kind of thing and don't get called for it. So, yeah, that's, and I've had a lot of them say that to me, say, I do this all the time. I can't believe that, that you were, you know, sort of criticized for that. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's happened to me. It's happened to me quite a bit. Do you feel like there's a difference between a perceived difference between dry and dusty history that one isn't reading 300, 350 pages in a day, a day and a half, and the narrative nonfiction, that level of engagement that you have within your texts? Do you think there's a there's a difference in perceived seriousness between the two? Um, well, I correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you're talking about academic nonfiction. Potentially, but I, I, you know, there's also there's also his, history put out there for the general consumer that is still dry and dusty. I've got one on the Norman Conquest that I haven't yet cracked the uh, the pages of because I just can't quite bring myself to to be that serious just yet. Yeah, you know, I I don't. Everybody has their own way of interpreting history and writing writing history and um and I, you know i guess for for some people it's more important you know i i want to present the full story but i want to do it in a way that's um the kind of book that i would like to read i remember i had one one criticism that i didn't go enough into the causes of prohibition and and you know sort of leading up to prohibition and why how this actually came to be a law in the united states and you know, I just felt like saying that it's the kind of review that really annoys me because it's like, review the book I wrote. Don't review the book that you wish I'd written. You want to read a book about leading up to prohibition and the laws of prohibition? There are hundreds of hundreds of them out there. That's not the book I wanted to write. I wanted to write a, a story about a, a person. I wanted to write about a story in the person who's operating in the confines of prohibition and how that was a, a kind of this quintessential American story. Um, and the drama that surrounded that and how this drama could only ever have taken place in the 1920s. There is no other decade in which George Remus could have existed in the way he, that he did. That's the book I wanted to write. So I don't, I don't disparage anyone who wants to take a more, um, dry, uh, I don't even want to say dry, I guess just more of a um, just the facts, ma'am, kind of approach, <laughs> um, rather than really um, uh, sort of focus on the storytelling aspect of it. So it, you know, it's 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 just um, it's just uh, somebody's different approach. Um, and if you do talk about about academic histories, I have great respect for academics. I'm not an academic. I'm not even a historian. I have a bachelor's degree in English. <laughs> and uh, but 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 they're great resources because all of the good stuff is buried in the footnotes. You know, the academics. <laughs> Uh, all of the good stuff is buried in the footnotes. So I, I thank them greatly for the tremendous amount of research they did. I go right to the footnotes and look to see if the, what story is being buried in there. Um, and again, not to disparage academics, it's a totally, they're, they're, they have a different point, they have a different focus, they have a different objective in their work. Um, but and, and I feel like it's almost apples and oranges, really. Well, and for the record, I'm married to an academic. One of my very oh. best friends is an academic historian. Oh, I have, uh, I have, I know. It's kind of like you're just saying, "Why well, friends are academics?" No, I, I do as well. And I, I really, you know, I'm just, uh, I did not go to, I did not have that level of schooling. <laughs> so I've got at least two questions rattling around in my brain right now, and I'll, and I'll try and get them both. Um, 
but there's a, there's a part of this where there's a damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? If you had spent more time writing about the history of prohibition, I would have had an opportunity to say, oh, I wish these pages weren't in here, right? And let's get back to these characters who are so incredibly well-drawn and incredibly well-developed. And so I could have gone the other way to that review that you had there. And I, th I think you're spot on to say, if that's if that's what floats your boat, go go read about that somewhere else. Which then has the question here of, there's a there's a point in the acknowledgements I want to say where you're you're talking about just one experience where you went and scanned fifty five hundred pages of a trial, and that's already suggesting you've got a lot of information, and I know you've done a wealth of research beyond those fifty five hundred pages. How do you decide what goes in? what stays out, and when do you decide when the research has to come to an end? Because I imagine that that's quite an appealing part of the process for you. Oh, it's my favorite part of the process. There's nothing more fun than going off to a, a location and researching. I, I think I, I'm not even exaggerating when I say it was one of the best weeks of my life to sit there in that library in this dank. It was at the New Haven, uh, Yale University Law Library, New Haven, Connecticut. And I uh, just parked myself in there from morning to night. I, I think I, I, you know, I brought like a bag of nuts that I would surreptitiously eat <laughs> when nobody was looking um, throughout the day. I, I barely you know, took any breaks at all. And it was just this wonderful, also there was this wonderful overhead scanner. I, I have a picture of it that I actually use in my slideshow. It was just a, this, I know it's going to sound weird, but if there's any research out there, researchers out there, it was this gorgeous. I mean, it was like the sexiest piece of machinery I've ever seen in my life, this overhead scanner. You know, usually I, you know, you just, it's such a pain to Xerox things. You have to lug the book around. You have to line, align the pages. You have to make sure everything is, is um, correct in the scanner. Um, but this was just, you press the button and this brilliant sunlight came on, just came in Xerox your pages. And, um, and that 5,500 trans page transcript had just some of the most incredible detail. When I talk about dialogue, um, a lot of it was in there. Um, I, I, I realized at some point during this week of researching this transcript or copying this transcript that uh, I could write this book as a nonfiction whodunit. And what a rare gift that was, because you, you really never have the source material to write a nonfiction whodunit um, where, you know, there's sort of a Chekhov's gun in the beginning scene and, you know, the gun's going to reappear later. But, you know, you have that gunshot and you don't know who is, you know, unless you're already familiar with the story, you don't know who shoots who. You don't know exactly, you know, what the outcome of that scene was. And you just have to keep reading to get to it. And in both uh, George Remus and his wife Imogene were certainly capable of murdering the other. So, um, so it was definitely an even, you know, 50, 50 chance on who's going to get shot here. Uh, and, and it was just so much fun to do that. And so I, it took me about four months to go through this child transcript. And I think the resulting outline was about 97,000 words, which was almost the length of the book itself which doesn't even compare with the outline I had to do for my next nonfiction. Then came the devil, which is at 102,000 words. So, yeah, but, but it is, the, it's the most, you know, it's fun. It's the most fun part of the process. Um, you're like a detective, you know, you don't know what you're going to find next. And uh, just the, the, the process of going through that and, and figuring out 
what is necessary, what is a great detail, where it goes. It's it's just like an enormous puzzle. Um, and and I, I, I honestly, it's it's the, the the most fun I've ever had. I think researching that book. Yeah. So I know you conducted this research a long time ago and then wrote the book and then it was released in 2019 and, and now the paperback is out as well. Congratulations on that. Uh, a paperback released during a pandemic. How was that oh, for you? It was hard. It was hard because, um, you know, I, I ended up doing some Zoom. Obviously, people started getting things going on Zoom, but it was fairly early in the pandemic. So people weren't quite, you know, it was in May, May of 2020. So people weren't yet really used to logging on to Zoom for an event. And it was hard. You know, it was it was hard. So um, I hope never to have to do that again. Obviously, I hope there's no pandemic, you know, massive pandemic again like that for other reasons. But it was it was really kind of miserable to have a book come out during that time. And I, I feel really bad for the authors who had their hardback come out. Yeah, well, hold on to your monkeypox. Hopefully we'll avoid a repeat of the same. And so, so, so I, the reason I was framing that is then, is there anything on the cutting room floor from your research for the Ghosts of Eden Park that still rattles around in your brain? Is there, is there a, a thing that happened that doesn't lead to any spoilers uh, for anybody going into the novel for the first time? You know, Will and Brandt um, was very uh, insistent upon, you know, one of her biggest challenges was finding honest prohibition agents. And, uh, you know, of course, the one she really thought was great, Franklin Dodge, ended up being a, a major, um, a, not, not the person that she had hoped he was. Of course, he gets tied up with George and Imogene. But she was very insistent upon, to go back to your question, uh, about having honest prohibition agents. And I did a lot of research on the kind of agents um, that were, were being employed at that time. And there were some fascinating characters. Um, Izzy and Moe um, was this duo who... Uh, you know, and I don't, I don't even know if they were honest all of the time, but there was a steward who would dress up in costume and these very elaborate costumes. They would, um, you know, dress up as old women or uh, a, a sort of, um, I think there was one, you know, they would dress up as bartenders themselves. I can't remember all the things, but they, they had these very flamboyant way of, of entrapping bootleggers. And there was also a female prohibition agent um, who was fascinating. There were a couple of them, but there was one who really stood out. She, um, she was known to be very brave. She was quick with a gun. Her name was Daisy Simpson, I think her name was. She had kind of a sad story at the end. Uh, she, she got addicted to drugs um, and had to leave service. Um, but I could have gone on a huge tangent about, about various prohibition agents who were employed during this time. And although it would have been interesting, uh, it's just it just wasn't, it wasn't, you know, didn't have a place in my book. And the same thing about... Um, all the way that that people were smuggling alcohol. I talk about this a lot in my slideshow when I do events, the various kinds of flasks and contraptions that people would make. Um, you know, there were there were, you know, flasks that looked like books and flasks that looked like canes. And women were, you know, shoving alcohol in all kinds of body parts and fake breasts and, and that kind of thing. And and the fascinating fact that 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 male prohibition agents, most of the prohibition agents, most of whom were male, there were several laws in, in many states about uh, it was illegal to search a woman, illegal for mm -hmm. a man to search a woman. And women took full advantage of this, uh, of course, and, and therefore just put alcohol in every conceivable body part that they could think of. Um, so those kinds of things. I Even if I touch on it briefly, I could have spent a couple pages on that. And I, it just wouldn't have served the greater narrative. So it had to go. Have you found yourself 
searching out or collecting any of those types of flasks? Is, has that held oh, any interest for you? Oh, I did, actually. I bought a, um, the, the original ones are incredibly expensive. Um, uh, but I bought a reproduction prohibition cane flask where um, it, it looks like just a regular gentleman's cane. If you, if you screw, um, unscrew the, the section, there's a glass vial inside and you can put your alcohol in there and then you would, you know, surreptitiously dip, you know, pour it into your, your coffee or whatever. Uh, there's a woman, a, a great picture of a woman smiling widely as she does this uh, in a cafe. Uh, and, um, you know, actually when the bars back opened back up after, um, you know, during the pandemic, when things were starting to open again, the, one of the first things I did was I went to a bar with my, <laughs> with my little flask and said, oh, it's, you know, my going to celebrate the Roaring Twenties. So. That is awesome. That's absolutely excellent. Well, in, in terms of, you know, you, you've, you've seen me sipping along during the interview, just despite it being uh, early in the morning. My, my coffee is not too far away, um, but I've been sipping on the old Forrester, the 1920 Prohibition style release, and it's just so delicious. Uh, absolutely fantastic. And trying to get myself into that time period that we're discussing the morning. You know, this is professional. It's a professional move, Abbott. Absolutely. I, I wholly endorse that. <laughs> did, did you know much about prohibition going into it and, and then you know in addition to that and, and and what was your love of of spirits uh going into the research on this and then the uh, the ultimate writing that's a good question no i did not know a lot about prohibition i usually go into my subjects pretty blind on on the, the larger picture you know um and uh and part of the great fun is even just learning you know, of course, I knew the rudimentary, rudimentary elements of prohibition, but not the specifics. And just sort of getting a broad base of knowledge about that was very interesting. Um, as for spirits, I, I never drank like whiskey. I always preferred clear liquor or wine, or more <laughs> wine than anything. I'm a, I'm a kind of a wine, uh, you know, I really, I really have like taken, you know, studied wine and that kind of thing. But I met a couple, there was a woman who worked for George Remus brand whiskey. Um, I think her name was Robin Carnes and she made the most delicious whiskey cocktails that I ever tasted. Um, and I never thought that the bourbon could be refreshing. Um, mm. And she actually made bourbon refreshing. And so ever since then, I have been a fan of bourbon. I won't drink it straight. Um, I still have to have it, uh, have some other, some other things to for it to pal along with, but I really enjoy the bourbon cocktail now. Nice. I'm not asking for measurements or the recipe, but do you, do you even remember the the core ingredients that would allow it to be refreshing? Was it maybe just just a high quantity of ice? It's fine if you don't remember. I forget cocktails all the time. Yeah, it wasn't the ice. Like the, she made one taste kind of like a, a bourbony lemonade. Um, mm. It was really good. Uh, it kind of just had a, a tart, a tartness to it. So um, I, you know, I do have to get back to my bourbon cocktail making. It was, it was quite, a, quite delicious and lovely. Uh, yeah, there's, and again, I'm not going to be able to give you the recipe either. But uh, we've been talking to our listeners about a Toronto over last Thanksgiving. I started making a Toronto, and uh, for the simple syrup, it uses maple syrup. And it's just an absolutely delicious bourbon cocktail. And boy, do you lose an afternoon quite easily on it. And it was, <laughs> it was perfect around Thanksgiving time. I'm down here in Virginia. And it just fit the season so well. Um, really, really delicious. I'm going to have to look that up. Thanks for the recommendation. Yeah, no worries. I'll, I'll, I'll email you the, the recipe that I use. There, there's... 
I think a standard Toronto, and then there's a wrinkle with the maple syrup. Um, and I, I can send you the version. I Again, because I don't remember much of anything, um, I keep it on my phone. And so I've got the Toronto ready to go on my phone. Very cool. Yeah, let me, let me know what you think of it. So one of the things for me is, and obviously today we're, we in our own way are pulling you back in time to when you were researching and writing and then, you know, more regularly talking about the Ghosts of Eden Park. On a personal level, something I'm very, very excited about is your next narrative nonfiction called Then Came the Devil. And we were talking a second ago about having friends who are academics. Um, I was an academic for a dozen years teaching philosophy. And one of the philosophers I actually taught a course on a couple of times was Friedrich Nietzsche. And, and I see mention of Friedrich Nietzsche in, you know, the, the prologue posted on your website. And, and I'm, I'm curious about a host of things here. So please just wax lyrical. I'm interested in, you know, what the book's about, how you got the idea for that, the research conducted about that, uh, the prologue that's online. I, I thought, oh, this is online. I wonder how much this will, will stay and how much you might find yourself changing it. How's the writing going? And when do I get to see this? When do I get to read this in a very selfish way? So that's five things. If you cover them all, great. If you don't, great. <laughs> wax lyrical about the next thing. Yeah, so the next book is Then Came the Devil, as you said. Um, I, I, it is, it's, I, you know, part of part of my problem with doing Remus is like, I don't know how I am going to find a story weirder than that one. I, I don't know how I'm going to top it in terms of subject matter. And of course, then, uh, Then Came the Devil, I think, is even weirder um, <laughs> in a good way. I love weird stories. I love strange characters, eccentric characters. Um, but I, I had come across this story a long time ago. I was thinking about taking a trip to the Galapagos Islands. And if you start reading any literature about it, um, usually it mentions if you're going to visit the island of Floriana, you know, it's the island of secrets. You know, here's a weird, here's the weird history and how it's kind of haunted and cursed and and this kind of thing. And, and the story in a nutshell is um, a, a German doctor and one of his patients who becomes his partner um, decide to leave Berlin. Um, it's the lead up to World War II. You know, uh, the, the fall of the Weimar Republic is approaching. Hitler is coming into power. They leave and they decide to try to set up a utopia on the Galapagos Island of Floriana, which is very small, very remote, one of the most southern islands of the Galapagos. I just visited there in May and it still only has about 200 people um, on, on the island. Everybody knows everybody. There's two bars. Of course, I had to go to both of them. And, you know, they, they do this. And he was a very eccentric, weird guy. He was a, a big, I guess, a pioneering proponent of raw food and the benefits of water. And he had all these experiments he wanted to conduct um, on the human body in, in the Galapagos Islands. Uh, he even extracted all of his teeth before going over there because he was worried about having dental problems that would not be able to be addressed in a remote island. So long story short, because it, obviously it's a, it's a book-length story, uh, 
he they 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 start settling in their life down there. Things are tense once in a while. He's such a crazy egomaniac, and she is um, his disciple, and and alternates between wanting to please him and feeling in, in alignment with his philosophy, and being like, oh my god, this guy is terrible. And you could just read, you know, her writings and and just like the the constant internal struggle she had of talking herself into thinking this was great. And uh, another family comes over from Germany. Uh, they and they are not pleased about this. They wanted solitude, um, but they they start coexisting fairly peacefully. Um, these two families, um, but then all hell breaks loose. Of course, when a woman calling herself the Baroness arrives with two lovers in tow, and she proclaims that she's going to turn the island of Floriana into Miami and build an American style hotel. And and meanwhile, American explorers are starting to. Uh, come over and be fascinated by these people. There's competition and just sort of all kinds of, uh, of, of nefarious happenings. And in the end, um, a couple of people are dead, a couple of people are murdered, and the American explorers are sort of left to pick up the pieces and try to solve the mystery of what happened. And I'm having just as much fun researching the American explorers. Um, they, they had a really huge hand in the story. Um, you know, I did at one point the United States was considering buying the Galapagos as a, just a nature preserve. They wanted to, you know, they, they, they knew best on how to preserve this, this great wildland. Of course, the United States thinks that. And, and just sort of, uh, you know, what, what these millionaires were doing during, during the 1930s when everybody else was suffering greatly with the Great Depression. And this sort of glamorous, um, I think it was kind of the first era of really glamorous, uh, um, exotic boat travel, yacht travel to these islands um, down in the South Seas. Um, and it, it became sort of like a, a, a competition among these millionaires as to who could have the bigger yacht, how many islands can you go to, what exotic species can you bring back for your local zoo? And of course, they brought back these 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 animals that don't exist anywhere but the Galapagos Islands and bring them to the San Diego Zoo and don't know that don't know what the hell to do with them. Uh, so it's just kind of like this this confluence of of factors and I, that I just think. Um, and to me, it also became a COVID book. You know, I, I really started getting into this during when when the lockdown was happening. And everybody was like, I just want to go to a desert, desert island. I just want to get away from everybody. I need solitude. I need isolation. I need space. And um, so it also takes a look at the dangers of extreme isolation. I think we could all say that we were affected uh, during COVID being isolated. And, and here's just an extreme version of that. It's almost like an early version of reality TV, this, this whole escapade. And, and also my, my, the thing I think of when I'm um, writing it, you know, is is adult Lord of the Flies really is adult Lord of the Flies. Interesting, interesting. It's, it's interesting because on your website, I think you've got the exiles and the explorers separated into two groups right now, where you you can see, you know, per- perhaps two narratives being set up for the for the text. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so I'm, I'm in the middle of writing it. Um, I probably have about 35,000 words, but I had to put it aside for a bit to work on edits for my novel. So right now I'm, I'm, I'm not in the 1930s. I'm going back between the 70s and 80s. So, yeah, which, which sadly is also history at this point. <laughs> it, it's interesting because as I've gone from Sin in the Second City with you, there we were at the, the turn of the 20th century. Uh, with these wonderful sisters. And then I went into the, the 20s with you, you know, somewhat in Chicago, but predominantly in Cincinnati. 
and now you're going to take me off into the 30s uh, and off to from Germany off to the Galapagos. And so it's it's interesting how you yourself are moving through these decades. And then you mentioned the, the novel where you've got the 70s and 80s. Are there days when you just kind of look around yourself? Oh, gosh, the, the, the necessary question is the second season of Russian Doll. Are you a Russian Doll fan on Netflix? No, I, it's in my queue. I um, oh. and I love Natasha, uh, right. but I haven't. I know I have to. I have to watch it. I, I just I got caught up in um, in various other things. I, in fact, I watched. I just only watched The Crown, which I know is like uh. many many years too late. So it's like I'll. <laughs> You know, I will. I will get to it. It's in my. It's in my queue. Okay. Okay. Just the the decade hopping that's going on in that second series, um, where where you have those moments of where the hell am I? Um, highly recommend. So so are you aware of that kind of passing of decades yourself, and and even within your own research and writing? Yeah, I, I try not to visit the same. I mean, I would revisit the same decade if it's an entirely different story, but I haven't done that yet so far in, in my nonfiction. Um, you know, the 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 time, the setting of a, the, the obviously the the year and the era a book takes place is just part of its setting. So it's kind of like, in addition to familiarizing yourself with the characters and the plot and the and the sort of subtext of, of what these people were doing. You're also looking at um, what did the 1930s look like? You know, what 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 kind of radios were there? What would a what would a yacht look like in the 1930s? What were they wearing? What music were they listening to? What what kind of thing? You know, exactly what was happening with the recession? How much was the price of a loaf of bread at that time? How much more difficult would it have been to be living on a remote island where, I mean, one of the things I learned by traveling over there was I, I can't even imagine living there today. And even with the conveniences of electricity and Wi-Fi, spotty Wi-Fi, but Wi-Fi. And these people were going over there in the 1930s when they had none of that. And also this woman had multiple sclerosis. I mean, and, and it was kind of like just to get to get a pail of water, you had a trek miles and um, just kind of remarkable. So 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 I just think that whatever area you're you're setting your book in, it's just it's just as important to focus on the minutia of of how the world had shifted in that space as it is to look at your characters and your plot and your outline and, and where you think the story's gonna go and how can you arrange the parts into the most satisfying whole. I tell Dexter is saying, listen, you've been talking to this Jamok for far too long. You gotta pay attention to me at some <laughs> I'm point. So sorry. No, not in the slightest. This is wonderful color. We're we're keeping in Dexter uh, for the listeners. But I'm gonna I have many, many more questions, but I'm gonna get you out on on one more, which is we speak to producers of whiskey about the passage of time. And so when you make new make today, and that goes into a cask, you might not see it, we might not see it as a consumer for three years, five years, 10, 12, 30, right? And, and I always ask the producer of that whiskey, do you get impatient? And, and my closing question for you, Abbott, is we're sitting here talking about all the work you've done, all the research, all the writing, then the going out and the, the selling the book as it exists out in the world. And then I show up and I say, I read that in 24, 36 hours. When are you giving me the next thing, right? Time for me as a consumer looks very different for you as the producer. And so how does it feel to, to know that there's time for you to be putting in here? There's a certain exploration and research and writing and people who are now 
dedicated fans of yours are saying, next thing, next thing, next thing. What's that like? Well, um, it's one of the reasons I wanted to get into fiction because you can write it much faster than you can nonfiction. And, and uh, I have novel friends who are like, God, I haven't had a book come out in two years and people are going to forget me. I'm like, my, I have, I have five, like five years, you know? And, um, and obviously you expect that with nonfiction, there's a much greater span of time because you have to actually research and, and, and um, fact check and do all of that. Uh, but, um, but it's kind of gratifying now to know that, that if I can start a novel, a career writing fiction, at least in addition to nonfiction, if not solely, uh, you know, that I could, I could maybe just start, putting more, having more out there, you know, nonfiction is, is, is difficult in the sense that if you pick a nonfiction book, you better make sure you want to live with that for the next four years or three years or however long it takes you to do it. It, it has to be something you're excited to turn to every day or else it is the most, the longest, most in, interminable, horrible slog that you can imagine. And so, again, that's another reason nonfiction is hard. You have to find all the factors that go into picking a nonfiction book. But, but it is. It's, it's gratifying to be, people are like, faster, faster, but it's coming out. And you're just like, uh, <laughs> I still have five archives to visit, you know, um, in addition to writing, in addition to editing. Uh, so it's just, uh, it's just a di- nonfiction is a different beast. So um, hopefully with fiction, I can at least get a little bit of, of quicker momentum going. Well, and I would think at this point, as, as much as I've talked about the two books I've read, you do have an, another two um, narrative nonfiction. Yes. One on the Civil War. And one on Gypsy one on, Rose Lee and the sort of entertainment Rose of the nineteenth, uh, the 20th century. Yeah. And so so while I am impatiently waiting for Then Came the Devil, uh, you're, you're going to get me to read about the Civil War, which is something I just simply don't read about. I read about so many other things. Yeah. But, well, but living in Virginia, gonna... you know, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of, it's all around you. Yeah. <laughs> which is also why I'd spend a lot of time avoiding it. Um, you know, you, you go out for a loaf of bread, you go past a, a Civil War site. Um, yeah, no, it's true. I used to live in Atlanta. Um, in fact, hmm. I... I, um, I got the idea for that book while I was living in Atlanta and stuck behind a pickup truck with a bumper sticker that said, don't blame me, I voted for Jeff Davis. Which, so you know, <laughs> oh God, I mean, perfect and hard, it's just awful. And, uh, and, you know, in Atlanta traffic, I was stuck looking at that for about two hours. And, you know, I was like, okay, I, this is telling me something. I have to look into the Civil War. And of course, um, the female Civil War spies is where I landed, so. Man, well, Thank you. Thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank I've you. Taken you. I've taken you away from researching the very book I want to be reading. <laughs> uh, uh, well, well, I hope we get a chance to speak again when that, when Then Came the Devil comes out. That would be fantastic. Uh, thank you ever so much. Thank you so much. Jason Johnston Yellen, you have done it. <laughs> Well, that's not nerve-wracking in the slightest. <laughs> Jason Neil Johnston yelling. I know. Right? Is that that's better? exactly it. I would say that's what, that's what my mother said when I was in trouble, but I was never a yelling until I left home and got married. So, But Jason Neil Johnston certainly got thrown around a few times. Well, um, it was so... Sorry if I'm slurping my coffee there. That was, I didn't mean to be quite that noisy. You always are when you slurp. So... It's like ramen. That's like oh. that's etiquette, right? You're meant to be slurping. You're meant to hear those. You're meant to show those noises, your enjoyment, right? yeah. Yeah.
It's such an enjoyable conversation. And, you know, it's, it's one of these things where you said, hey, I've, I've got this book. It's the second book from this author that I've read. I really want to speak with her. And it was Indeed. a book that I, A, hadn't heard of, an author that I hadn't heard of, but the subject material sounded good. And um, I, I kind of feel like one of our listeners where I said, okay, I've trusted you in the past. <laughs> I'm fine with this detour. And, and it, was, it was awesome. It was, it was a really cool conversation. And again, I, w- I wish I could have been a part of it, but maybe next time, maybe for her, her next book. Well, actually... As you heard us discuss towards the end of that interview there, her next book is Then Came the Devil, and I am super excited for the launch of that. Mm. I'm ready for another (laughs) reading experience that you just plow through. Quickly, before we, we we do move on here, Seabass, yes. Christopher Sebastian, who we mention a bit here, he and I will often have some, some book recommendations going back and forth. Yeah. yeah, And I had reached out to him to say, dude, you you have to check out The Ghosts of Eden Park. And he wrote me back. He said, I've seen that cover and that title oh, wow. floating about. Yeah. And so, yeah, now... Now I'm going to go get it. And I said, look, we're going to interview the author next episode of One Nation Under Whiskey. And so he's trying to get the book read before this episode comes out. <sighs> Speed it up, Seabat. Oh, well, actually, he can if he, he can. And now here we are. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell the him to speed live. up <laughs> after he's heard the interview. Anyway. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's so good. That's cool. So good. Actually, you, you reminded me we talked about Seabass quickly in our last episode and mentioned that I got a chance to hang out with him because he he and his family came to Connecticut and I remember in the episode I said I said oh yeah I did I did want to tell the listeners about that meetup and then I never got to it really quickly because it involves <laughs> New Haven pizza which I which I think is, is very important Jason um, I don't think I've ever heard you talk about New Haven pizza <laughs> well we we met up just for about Two and a half hours, we met at Bar, which as you know, and any listener with with ears uh, and memories will tell you Bar is my favorite uh, pizza place ever, period, done. And so we met there, we got some beers, and we got a mashed potato pizza, and then we got the elote pizza. Did I tell you about the elote oh, pizza? Oh, I had it last oh, time I was it. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so those, were the, those were the pies that we got, and he... Seabass had said, I'm sold. I'm sold. <laughs> he loved it. He took some back to his family. Did they have any takis for the Elote pizza this time? Not only did they put the takis on the pizza, but the takis were bigger. Like before, uh, it was almost like taki dusting. Mm-hmm. And this time around, it was like good bits of takis on the nice. pizza. And it was a, a bigger, it amplified the experience. No Fantastic. Yep. Fantastic. Yep. Um, but just a wonderful guy to hang out with, easy to talk to, had a lot of good laughs, got to learn about him and, and his wife and a bit about his family. So that was 
it was nice. I'm, I'm glad we met up. Awesome. Well, we have we have run the gamut from Karen Abbott, Abbott Keeler, to Seabass, to New Haven Pizza, to Bar, to Takis. We should probably wake up the paperboy next. Mystery, history, we all are about it. Life story, a playboy, penny, extra, 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 we all about it. Me and I playboy Our last episode where you and I just got to sit and, and chitty chat with one another, which is always a, a highlight of, of any week. Mm-hmm. Got some really good feedback from our listeners. And I think, you know, our listeners enjoy the camaraderie that exists between us. And yeah, here do. we are, yeah. you know, and, and also I, th- I think the transparency with which we operate, operate, interact with our listeners, you know. And so... We've been talking for a while about global logistics mm. and the struggles <laughs> with global logistics. Uh-huh. There's that knowing chuckle, yep. right? <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Who were we talking to the other day? We, yeah, we were talking to Matt Hoffman and, and we started talking global logistics and, and he had that kind of knowing chuckle. And it's just like, yeah, we're all in the same boat right now. But we had a good experience where global logistics actually operated quite well and quite quickly yeah it almost (laughs) felt it almost felt like before times (laughs) when we didn't use air freight (laughs) (laughs) but yeah right right so this this is perfect i'm so glad you brought this up we'd mentioned on the podcast previously that you know not only had ocean freight if we're if we're talking if we're yeah. talking um, shipping time from Scotland to the U.S. Or, or where we warehouse, which is in California, San Francisco, with our friends at Impex, um, you know, normally that ocean freight would be two months, two and a half months, three months on the outside, but that was really it, right? Honestly, I, I remember really in the beginning we were getting quotes of six to eight six weeks, to eight weeks. And, and, yeah that's a good point. and we would yeah. we would never bank on six we no. would never bank on six no. but six to eight became <laughs> weeks became <laughs> two to three months became good luck six to eight weeks became 68 <laughs> weeks um <laughs> but then you know it wasn't just ocean freight that was affected by the global pandemic and, you know, extending those lead times, like you'd said, from two to three months to five to six months. And yeah, in yeah. some cases to nine months or more and air freight as well. Air freight, the way air freight worked was you get your ship ready. You call your global shipping logistics partner to arrange for a pickup and between the time of that first conversation and the time the shipment arrives to the warehouse is around a week, right? That's, that's how it takes for setup, for pickup, for loading, for flying over, for unloading, go through customs, get to your warehouse, about a week. That then extended to a month, maybe a little more yep. than a month. And, yep. and part of it is just accessing these containers that were held up in China because China remains in many parts to be in lockdown because of COVID. So anyway, with this shipment 
Jason, that, that you were talking about as we were coming out of the Paperboy's rant, we were fully expecting to wait about a month, maybe five weeks to get our shipment. Yeah. Yeah. And what happened? <laughs> well, I, I like what you said there about the initial request for court and then court and then all the clearing that happens. Mm. And we just had this conversation the other day. It, it was two weeks. Yeah. It was two weeks from court yep. to landing, which huge, remarkable, yeah. really remarkable. So, uh, I mean, part of me hopes that this is the direction we're headed in. But part of me, the cynical part, <laughs> right, is like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll I just, <laughs> yeah, go on. Well, I, like that hopeful part of me. And, and, and I'm not bringing, I'm not trying to be p- political. You know, we always try to stay away from oh. politics. Oh. But I remember oh. after um, oh. the George W. Bush administration, towards the end, we were going into recession, and then Obama was, was voted in. And about a year or two into his presidency, as we're coming out of the recession, I remember him saying, we're starting to see these green shoots, Right. The, these 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 things that are telling us maybe we're coming out of this. And there was that hopeful sense to the words that he was using. And when we saw that the shipment had come in in two weeks rather than five to six weeks, all I could think was, is this our green shoots moment with global logistics or is this just a fluke? I've just been sitting here listening to our tone and we've been describing good news like it's bad news. <laughs> like we're, we're so weighted yeah. in our yeah. enthusiasm yeah. Yeah. that it's kind of like, and in this instance, it was two weeks and that felt great. <laughs> but we're not sure if we will feel that greatness again. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> like we're so measured. <laughs> so very measured. Like, yes. Like, but here's the yeah. takeaway. Here's yeah. And here's why we're talking about this. Here's why we're bringing it up. We, we gave a bit more detail in the last episode. When it was just the two of us and, and we were kind of really expanding upon our, our list. And in this instance, we're saying to you if, you, if you're US based and we've got a lot of stuff coming to the online nation here, we're going to take some time. We're going to take a month, maybe a couple of months to get these released, to get these out, to get to get the word out about them. You know, mm. we're we're doing what we've always done, which is we're continuing to push the envelope and we're bringing in our first release mm-hmm. from Paul John that has gone online. Jess did have a rest of the world, exactly. Paul John, yeah. that was very well received. Yep. Yep. And a few bottles of that are on their way to Canada right now. Oh, so, so excited if, it's in Canada. So if yep. you're a Canadian SCN fan, you've got some retail Paul John heading your way. So here we are with the nation, our first Paul John for the nation. Peated Paul John. <laughs> We've got our first Swedish whiskey going out to the nation with the Macmira. Mm-hmm. 13 years, virgin oak cask. Fantastically exciting stuff. 
fantastically exciting. Joshua holding yeah. up a little yeah. sample bottle that I sent him. Beautiful color. Can't wait to do the tasting video on it. Right. And so so there's there's some new coming in there. We've got a return to milk and honey with a couple of casks, one of which was a peated cask. So we're always excited to continue the relationship with M&H and uh, the good people in Tel Aviv there. And then, as, as we talked about, <laughs> we've got First Fill Bourbon that went into First Fill Sherry <laughs> with Adal Ewan. Oh my gosh, Jason. We are not color guys. We say this all the time, but holy crap, the color on that Del Yuen is remarkable and only supports the remarkable flavors coming through. Like that color is usually an indication of your level of sherried component to the whiskey, and it is so there. However, that Del Yuen spice just remains. This one is really, they're all belters. But being a bit of a Daluane fanatic, I'm I'm just over the moon with this one. Oh, without any shadow of a doubt. Without any... And I think it's also nice... I think sometimes when you get that real dark sherry in a finish, it's building on top of much quieter flavours where maybe you've had refill, mm. you know, American oak or something like that. Here we've got first fill bourbon, right? So that has some presence. Yeah. Then you've got the Dalyuan spirit, and then you've got a very active sherry finish on it. It, it. There's a there's a lot to it, and I know, and I'm hearing it from the nation. There's a building love for Dalyuan, and you and I have, have led the charge, and you and I have clearly said we are rapidly becoming big Dalyuan fans. And the nation is getting a chance to, to join us in that. I, I think you could say Dal you and I. Dal you and Ooh. I have been getting into it. See that? There you go. Dal you and I. <laughs> and so you right, could say that. You might not want it, but you could I. say that. <laughs> right. So so I think you've covered them all. Peated Paul John are two M H's, one from an exile cask, one from a first fill bourbon. Or Mechmira, which is from Virgin Oak. And I just took a sip of this. This is mm. people with a bourbon palate are really gonna really gonna glom onto this one well, I think. Uh, and then our and then our Del So what is that? Six? Six new whiskeys coming your is way. Is that really six? Is that six? No, it's five. Is it five? I, I'm only counting five. Yeah, it's five. There you go. <laughs> it's like a, is it you no, know, it's not even a baker's half dozen. <laughs> The other thing I would say is we've also got a couple of of special uh, private club picks going on that will move through the back end of the nation. But depending on the the purchasing from those clubs, we might have some leftover bottles as we've had in the past. That's true. And so, so we'll be letting the nation know if we've got any leftovers there as well. And those are both cracking casks. Yes, yeah. People will be clamoring Let's for Let's not say anything, just in I'm case the clubs to. buy them all. Just, exactly. Just in case. <laughs> I'm playing it crap. safe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so there you go. I, I mean, to my mind, that was the news that I wanted to share. I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to add on before we moved on to 
something else. I, I will indeed. I will indeed. Because okay. we're building the cask pick program within retail and among distributors, mm-hmm. that's Elijah's baby. We, we talk about Jess and what Jess works on as, as global mm-hmm. sales manager out of Glasgow. And Elijah has really been putting in yeoman's work to build that program. Mm-hmm. And he's going to continue spreading the word on Instagram, the the banter around the barrel yep. uh, that, that he has been putting in. He, and he'll be talking to store owners who made the pick. Uh, he'll be talking to reps who are in charge of, of you know, helping to sell uh, some of those distributor picks. And so really, you know, follow that, right? Go look at, um, you know, Single Cast Nation on Instagram is where we make sure yeah. that word is getting out. But he's putting together a great little program there. The list is longer than we can possibly deal it, with It, it uh, is right now. It, it's one of those tough positions we're in where we have a set number of casks each year that we could do a single cast program with. And typically that program closes around June, if not earlier, you know, especially if you want to get it in for October, November, December. Um, and it is nice, right? It's, it's nice to have a longer list than we can satisfy. It's like one of those, you know, good problems to have kind of thing. So to add on to that, you know, you mentioned the, the, the Scotch malt whiskeys, you mentioned the rums, but there's also some rise as well. That, mm-hmm. that Elijah is working with too. And we want to expand that to come 2023, 2024. So if you're a club, if you're a retailer, if you're, if you're a distributor that buys Single Cast Nation, you know, please reach out to us. We'll get you in touch with Elijah. And, you know, know this, we do have a long list. We do want to work <laughs> with people when and where we can. Um, it's, well, it's nice to have this, you know, this international side to the picks. And then this domestic side, mm. having a domestic component is really cool. Yeah. And and I don't think we're going to be done at Rise. But again, I'm not going to say too much. <laughs> oh, cool. There were some emails I wanted to bring to our attention. Email number one came in from Sean Parent, who was a highlight of our last episode. Indeed, right. indeed, indeed. That was a great original email he sent in. <laughs> and so the the subject uh, for the, for those that either may not have listened to last episode, A, go back and listen to last episode. 100%. Or yep. B, had forgotten the subject line of Sean's email, it was did I buy the wrong bottle? Mm-hmm. And and the story was he bought a bottle for his sister and it was <laughs> Sort of on a suggestion from us, we we talked a lot about Lafroig, and he bought a Lafroig for his sister. It was Lafroig Select, and his sister's boyfriend was not too impressed by the bottle he got. So we went, we waxed lyrical about that again. Go back and listen to the episode. Anyway, I reached out to him and I said, "Hey, not sure if you got a chance to listen to last episode, but we did highlight your email." To which Sean's response said. Hey, Joshua, I've not heard the episode yet, but I may jump ahead to that episode <laughs> to hear it. And this is, this is what I like, because I, I, I'm with him. Full disclosure, I am a completionist and am playing catch-up. I've just hit the <laughs> summer of 2020 episodes, and I'm listening to how... Uh, sorry, and I'm listening to how you both wrap your heads around the pandemic. 
Thanks for addressing my email, and I will be listening to that out of order. So this is interesting yeah. because in our response, when we were waxing lyrical in the last episode, we talked about the episode we put together that was your five whiskeys that should be on every shelf, my five whiskeys that should be on every shelf. And knowing where Sean currently is, he hasn't reached that episode yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah. And so he's going to get that revelation as well. Revelation? Revelation. 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 As well. Yeah, he's not going to revel. Rela? It's, it's, a, it's a bit like fork. You just say it enough ways and enough different tones and you just... It's like, I don't think that's a word anymore. Wait. So... Fork? Fork. Fork. <laughs> fork. Knife will do it as well. Knife will get you. Spoon. Right? It all becomes ridiculous <laughs> after some period of time. Um... But anyway, it was interesting that we made reference to that episode and he hasn't heard it yet. So yeah. I think that's going to be good. And I think as he was saying in his, towards the end of his email, don't forget to drop in the occasional nugget for us newbies. I think that episode with these five whiskeys that should be on your shelf yeah. from each of us, yeah. I think that's a, that's a great place. We should remember the, the episode number for that one because it would be a good one to drop in regularly, especially as we start getting into the gift-giving months. That's a good point. That is a very good point. Uh, I'm full of good points. I'm a regular <laughs> Hellraiser. I don't have anything to say to that. Anyway, Tim. Is it Pinhead? Pinhead. He's full of good points. Oh, he is full of good points, isn't that? He See will that? tear your soul apart, Jason. See that? I, I, I referenced a little bit of horror for you, and you didn't get the reference because I don't reference horror. Which is, right? I didn't expect. It's like getting a horror reference out of context. And that was one of my favorite stories growing up because I was a big Clive Barker fan. The movie was terrible. I revisited Hellraiser. And as spooky as, as Pinhead was and all the Cenobites, I know you're hating this. Our listeners are loving it. Um, like, they were all spooky, but the, the movie was just... Ugh. Anyway. I don't <sighs> mind telling you how many of our listeners reach out to say, I'm so glad you hate horror. I also hate horror. No, but that's a conversation no, no one says for that. another day, no so please move along. No, please move along. Horror. So we, we got an email from Tim Mushaw um, about our last episode. We had we got a lot of people reaching out about our sort of catching up episode. So it's nice yes. that people like it. Yeah, agreed. And so I'm, I'm going to go through this point by point. It's not very long, but here we are. He's, Classic Joshua. <laughs> well, it's a good size. It's a good size email. So obsessed by length. So obsessed. And and girth. Like that line arm was, was not just short, but it was also very slim. Narrow. Slim pickings. Anyway. The <laughs> uh, the subject line. The blues artist? <laughs> yeah. Slim pickings. Sun Sun what what's the blues player? Sun King? <laughs> Robert Johnson? At least, when, at least when we drink during our episodes, when we get to this point, we make no sense. There's at least a reason. Today, not a drop of alcohol has passed our lips, and oh. we've still reached the same stage of words on top of words, followed by words. The caffeine got me there, Jason. So Tim Mushaw's uh, email simply is, is titled, This Week's Podcast. Mm. Tim says... Hi, folks. Fun episode this week. It was like <laughs> listening to the intro, 
but like you forgot to put the interview before moving to the news. <laughs> and and a fine observation. And you're going to like this next <laughs> sentence too because this talks to the part where you where we were doing some blind tasting and you were giving me some tasting notes and you're yes. like how are you yes. not getting this based yes. off of this tasting note? Yes. <laughs> uh, which was um, orange, you know, orange spiced gumdrops. And so he says I was pleased uh-huh. I was pleased to be one of the ones shouting at the radio <laughs> when you Joshua couldn't guess a couple of the whiskeys you were drinking. Mm-hmm. The American Light Whiskey and Arden American were so obvious from the clues given. So not only was he on me, he was on you with yep, the Arden American. both of us. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, I'll actually tell you right now, Jess, Jess had said that Arden American was obvious. And, and again, I was just like, I just top five distillery. Like you just, you kept blocking me with that line. And then well, uh, here we are. To be fair. <laughs> I, I've simply had more Arden American than you, you know, being being with Impex. And yes, that, that was a hashtag humble brag. You know, being with Impex, I get to taste a lot of what's coming into the U.S. and some of the samples. And and now I've started buying bottlings from the U.K. I've, it's it's oh. I used to focus on bottlings from Imperial because no one knew about them and mm. I could easily get them for a fair price people have started discovering imperial and i'm not going to pay me and my lechigs yeah, yeah exactly yeah, right that so it's me and my lechigs man people have yet the to times, fully discover arden american and so here we are so anyway speaking of arden american tim goes on and says i was so pleased to hear that the arden american has moved up to the top five in joshua's list <laughs> <laughs> They're they're high up there for me also, and I'm looking forward to following their journey from the ground floor. Big kudos to Impex for importing them for us. Looking to do the same with Loch Lee once I can yep. get a bottle. I've been a John Campbell fanboy for a while. I don't think he's alone in saying that. Speaking of the Loch Lee, and I ask this for personal reasons, and I'm, I'm happy to get the answer for, for other folk as well. How is the the importation of the first two Lockley releases looking? So there is good news. And the good news is that the Lockley first edition, as well as the sewing edition, which had mm-hmm. spent months on the water. Remember what we were saying in, in the news, right? Mm-hmm. Where where two months turned into three months, turned into five months, turned into more. That is what happened with Lockley, but it's really I'm really happy to say that product has finally hit the US and it's starting to get onto store shelves so it's birth Oh wow. Yeah, so it's okay. both the first release and then their quote unquote sewing edition yes. which will be a limited edition and then later this year again this is in the hopes that the global logistics gods smile upon us we will be seeing uh, two other editions come in. I don't want. I don't want to say any more than that. I don't want to say any okay. more than that. But uh, having tasted them, I'm I'm really excited for them. It's, you know, people have asked me, you know, well, how, how is Loch Lee? You know, it, it's it's a lowland distillery. What's that going to be like? And, you know, if we think back to our conversation with David Ferguson and John Campbell, indeed. 
I think, you know, John basically said, and of course I'm paraphrasing, he said, you know, the lowlands are just a geographical, that just happens to be where we are geographically. We're not out there to produce a lowland style of whiskey. We're out there to produce whiskey that we think is excellent. And so, you know, having tasted through various Lockley whiskeys, it's they're not all that softer style of 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 whiskey. There's presence. There's, you know, we talk sometimes about um, whiskey bottles, and you could just look at a whiskey bottle that has a proud shoulder to it, and it looks rough and tough, and just you know, sh- uh, sure of itself. I, I think Loch Lee is that type of whiskey where it's very sure of itself. It has subtleties, but it's not as if that's all it has, right? There's a lot going on with these whiskeys. Yeah, I'm excited to get that first release and the sewing edition into the into the collection, onto the shelves, get them open, get them tasted. I still have not tasted a drop of Loch Lee. Uh, I'm holding out for the first release. I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Yeah. And, uh, and to hear that we can start sourcing that from some shelves as we keep an eye on it is uh, very exciting. So cheers for the update. Yeah. more in the email but the the rest of it is is more just for us internally and 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 i've already responded to him so so there's no need to to read the rest there the last thing that i will say is off the back of our last extra extra episode where we talked about american single malt we had asked people to to reach out and and let us know what they thought about that that nomenclature of American single malt rather than single malt American whiskey. And people have started writing in. So we'll we'll bring up an email or two in our next extra extra. And then finally, 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 our good, good, good friend, Ali Chilton, reached out with <laughs> a suggestion on an article for extra extra. So we'll see if we can get to that. He, All right. He also had a ton of of opinion in that email. So I I think we may want to get to that one. Um, He's an opinion that we, that we always value and, and like sharing. So, or I should say his is an opinion we always value and like to share. Cause Ollie is not an opinion. He has an opinion. (laughs) (laughs) And yet many people have opinions about Ollie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that that's all we have for mail. I I wanted to just put out one last thing because we we have been getting in some really good reviews on our Apple Podcasts, and we're now officially over one hundred reviews, which which has me over. Oh wow, that was very yeah, cool. Yep, we're at a we're at a hundred and two wow. reviews, Jason. That's insane to me. That's really insane if you think about how many listeners it takes to generate one review and we're over a hundred. That's very cool. Thank you. Thank you, dear listeners. So this, this, (laughs) this review came in July 25th from someone named not impressed at all. 
Well, here we go. And here we go. Batten down the hatches. <laughs> the title is The Rating Scale is Lacking Stars. <laughs> and so Not Impressed at All actually gave us five stars, right? When I saw the when I saw that this person's handle, I'm like, oh shit, we're we're in for it. But then there's they're basically saying there's not enough stars for this podcast. So I'm going to read you the, the content here. So it says, the pad cost that rules Yay! them all. <laughs> uh, uh, sorry, I didn't hear the rest of the words after pad cost. I was too busy <laughs> celebrating. Say that again. <laughs> the pad cost that rules them all. Oh, nice. Thank you. Thank you. One pad cost to rule them all. And in the darkness, bind them. Let's bring it. If you're a real whiskey geek, this is your go-to place for anything that happens in this industry. I thoroughly enjoy listening to these gents. There's always something new to learn, something to spark reflection, and always, that's all caps by the way, great mm -hmm. entertainment. Whether you're relatively new in the field, or if you're a more seasoned whiskey enthusiast, the One Nation Under Whiskey. Oh, that's funny. So it ends there. It sounds as if they may have hit the um, the maximum number of characters. <laughs> How many are you allowed? That, was, that wasn't a lot of words, was it? Wasn't it wasn't a lot of words, but it's, let me read this again. Whether you're relatively <laughs> new in the field or if you're a more seasoned whiskey enthusiast, the quote... O-N-U-W, end quote, and that's how it ends. I think Maybe it was like... going to be a sequel? Oh, there may be a sequel. Do you think there'll be a prequel? <laughs> I think it's like a choose-your-own-adventure. How, you, how would you end that <laughs> statement, Jason? If you're, more, if you're new to the field or if you're a more seasoned whiskey enthusiast, the One Nation Under Whiskey podcast... Is short and narrow, but has big spirit. <laughs> oh, that's good. All right. Yeah. Now you pose it to me. <laughs> I don't have to. I can't read it. You've got to. Oh, okay. So, so you pose, it, pose it to yourself. Okay. <laughs> you didn't memorize what <laughs> And your answer, Joshua? <laughs> so whether you're relatively new in the field or if you're a more seasoned whiskey enthusiast, the One Nation Under Whiskey podcast is your chance to do the Humpty Dance. To do the Humpty Hump. <laughs> Thanks and for this opportunity. Not at all impressed. <laughs> <laughs> he, I tell you, not at all impressed should be not at all impressed with how I ended his, his <laughs> sentence. To be fair, I wasn't at all impressed as to how I ended his sentence. Or her sentence. <laughs> or her sentence yep. is exactly correct, yep. Joshua. Yep, indeed. Well, if you, dear listener, want to be like Mr. or Ms., not impressed at all, you please go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, preferably five stars, four if you have to, um, and, and put some kind words down. Maybe finish a sentence or two, <laughs> and, uh, and, and we'll go ahead and read it. There's, there's a few more. Um, that, that we need to read. So we'll, we'll keep peppering them within these this episodes. This is delightful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I really appreciate anybody going over there, taking the time to, to write a few kind words. It really means a lot and helps other people find us and boosts us up the, the, the rankings. 
and uh, it helps us get discovered by more people. So mm-hmm. thank you. Thank yes. you, thank you, thank you. Yep. Thank you, thank you. So, Jason, that about does it. I want to thank you, first and foremost, for reaching out to the author, Karen Abbott. Um, thank you so much to her for being willing to speak with you, talk a little bit about <laughs> her writing and the writing process. And, and I, I really, I need to pick up this book and as well as the... Uh, the first one. There. It is also available in audiobooks. So <gasps> as you're driving around the world, you will be able to listen to it. So. You have spoken to my heart, Jason. I'm going to get that in the audiobook. I, oh, I know you. Thanks as always to the listeners, uh, to Not Impressed at All, to Tim, to Ian, to blah, 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 list, 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 list. Thank you, everybody. We really appreciate <laughs> you, you listening to us and supporting us along this way. So. I'm going to raise my sample bottle to my other sample bottle. All right. To say, I'm going to raise my coffee cup to my water glass. Cheers, Jason. Two chins. Two chins. God, yours sounds really bad. I thought mine sounded better than yours. (laughs) 